Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And... Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Alex, how are you? I'm good, thanks. And Christian. Really well, thank you. Yeah. Why don't we kick this off today? Because we've been off for a few weeks now, and since we've been off, lots and lots has happened, not least a report about deal or no deal. I believe you've got some thoughts on this, Alex. Uh, yes, yeah, so this was a report which came out uh, written by the, the Foreign Affairs Committee, um, and they essentially go to a, a bunch of universities and experts in different fields and ask them for evidence around uh, certain things. Um, the first thing which I, I thought it was interesting to note about this was that they, they went twice to the government to ask them for any evidence that the government could give around any assessment that it had done about what no deal would mean and both times the government came back and basically said we're not going to give you anything um, which, was, which was quite interesting so it ended up with them having to consult mainly with uh, guys from Cambridge University and the, the Bar Council as well in London um, and yes yeah, so they were looking at basically the implications of the no deal or the fallback fail safe type option really um, and it, it came at quite an interesting time because the government seems very adamant to try and avoid doing any kind of real assessment or, or telling us particularly what their thoughts are on no deal, apart from this whole no deal is better than a bad deal line. Um, and it's, it's kind of my opinion that the government's kind of forcing an extra level of scrutiny upon itself because mm. it's being so silent on the issue. Um, and yes, yeah, so then David Davis went into the select committee and took questioning just a couple of days after this report came out. And uh, safe to say, it wasn't a brilliant performance from him. No, no, I'm confused now. Are they saying that there is no assessment or they've done one and they don't want to tell us what the assessment says? Well, that's, that's exactly it. They're, they're telling us basically that there is, there is no assessment. He was asked the question quite specifically, have, have you done an economic impact assessment of, uh, of the impacts of no deal? And he said, under my time, no, no assessment is being done. Um, and then the, the Labour MP who was in the select committee for that, that questioning, uh, Pat McFadden, quickly made the point, well, how can you say that no deal is better than a bad deal if you've done no assessment of it? So, of course, the suspicion is that maybe some kind of assessment has been done and maybe it shows that no deal is actually a really, really bad deal and that maybe they don't want to tell us that um, because obviously they're still trying to maintain their negotiating hand. 
I see. Uh, and just out of interest, what did the report... The Foreign Affairs Committee. The Foreign, the, the Foreign yeah. Affairs Committee. What did they actually come back with on No Deal? Um, it's, it's a pretty damning report, to be honest. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not brilliant. Um, but the thing is that I, I always want to stress about this is that it's, it's looking at like the worst-case scenario, basically. Um, I, I mean, the government's running with the, the No Deal is better than a bad deal line, but I think anyone would consider if we... If we went into negotiations and came away with no deal, it would be seen as a failure uh, of, of some description. And so they were they were they were looking at the implications of what happens if we we fall back without any kind of arrangement in place. Um, and yeah, it, it doesn't look good. It's basically just a, a, a listing of, of all the different issues that we could face. So issues around the reciprocal rights of EU citizens here and our citizens there. Um, things around uh, particularly trade and how difficult trade might be. Uh, customs checks on borders. Um, the issue of EU institutions, uh, maybe us having to set up our own institutions to to replicate some of those. Um, the the issues in Ireland came up in it as well. Uh, the the sudden return of a hard customs border potentially, um, uncertainty for common security policy, things like that. It's it's basically a big list of everything which we wouldn't know how it works anymore. Basically, if if that happens. Now, Christian, how bad? Do you think a bad deal would have to be to be worse than no deal? I think you come into the the semantics now of what a bad deal is. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the real difficult bit. Let's just take a slightly different angle on that. I think the challenge here so far is everyone is absolutely focused on the trade aspect. Everyone, actually I don't think everyone understands, but everyone talks kind of fluently around the issue of free trade agreements. Um, They're getting into some of that conversation around customs and customs checks and regulatory equivalents and other things like that. The challenge actually is, whilst in many ways actually the free trade agreement side is probably one of the easier ones to, to fix, the bigger issue with this, the relationship between the UK and the EU is that wider regulatory uh, position, you know. So for for forty years now, our regulatory systems have gradually come together to the point where obviously they are now essentially the same. Um, there are a number of shared institutions that the EU has, which manages all of that regulatory environment. Um, and the question is actually, is kind of how do you get out of that? Now, No Deal is a true No Deal. I think, as Alex has said, is I mean. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's unbelievably unlikely um, because the the potential for complete chaos in an absolute no-deal situation is immense. So I think both sides will will work quickly, even if we get to kind of the ninth hour. I think mean, most sides, mm-hmm. will, both sides, will work quickly to make sure there's no real no-deal. But it's hard to imagine how a how a deal essentially, even if it's bad, actually gives you an outcome that's worse in kind of the sheer practicality terms of people living, working, crossing borders and trading. I can understand how it could be worse for the government mm. in its negotiating stance. I can see that it doesn't want to end up with a 10-year transitional arrangement where the European Court of Justice still has oversight of regulations in the UK. It's not going to want to end up in a position where the UK is paying significant amounts of money into the EU budget, perhaps in the scale of billions a year to remain you know, participatory to some of those frameworks. Those things are clearly very bad from Theresa May's point of view, because she was very clear back at her Lancaster House speech in January um, that we will be outside the European Court of Justice, we will not be making payments into the EU budget, we will be outside the single market. She set herself some really hard lines, you know, some big red lines there. 
Um, but actually, so I think coming back, can a bad deal be worse than no deal? For the rest of us, I'm not sure that's really true. Uh, I'll chip in there. I mean, there's a point made in the report itself where they say that, technically speaking, a bad you could come up with a bad deal that's worse than no deal. I mean, so if the EU comes back and says you owe us a 60 billion withdrawal settlement and you're still going to have to pay into the EU budget every year uh, and maybe we'll guarantee the rights of your citizens but everything else is off the table, that's it, nothing else is sorted out, then potentially that's politically untenable and they they would have to turn it down because it would look really bad. Um, But the chances of that sort of a deal actually being offered are are slim to impossible because there there would just be no point. I, I don't think the EU would... I don't think the EU would would want to hurt us so badly that they would offer such a deal that was almost insulting. It would have to be insulting almost to be worse than yeah, a no deal. Because the insulting option or the no deal option actually does play into the hands of other Eurosceptics skeptics around the continent. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, y- y- there are lots of Eurosceptics in particular who who are very open to the idea of of no deal being okay um, and, and suggesting that it, it won't be as bad as everyone thinks. But it's it, it's still going to be bad, and it's still going to create a lot of a lot of areas that where we need to figure out exactly what the new systems are going to need to be. Um, it, it, and it's just there there are people trying to kind of do this assessment, and it's very difficult. But I think the big the big thing that's come out of the past few weeks is that the government itself is 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 just distancing itself so much that it's kind of very frustrating. I mean, Davis was asked the question um, in 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 this in this questioning, and. Uh, he said that no deal would be probably be worse than some people think it will be and probably would be not as bad as other people think it would be. And you kind of think, well, that's not helpful at all, really, thanks. <laughs> so you, re- you raised the point the other week which I really liked, which is there's no point in trying to keep everything secret because every time we go to Europe, everyone tells everything to everyone anyway. Yeah. What do you think the government's strategy is with this, sec- with, with this sec- secrecy? Um, it, it is basically. I mean, there was an article which came out this week, and we we discussed it. And you can you can put this whole negotiation kind of scenario in terms of what what we call game theory in economics, which is mm. where there's two actors and they both have to make a decision, but they they can make that decision basically on their own without letting the other one know what their decision might be, and. It, it, basically what can happen is that both sides can act in their own best interests and in doing so, overall, a, a, the worst outcome occurs, yes. is, is the risk. Um, and, and so the reason that the government's keeping its cards so close to its chest is, is essentially it's what, it's what they say it is, which is that the, the EU could then turn around and offer us a bad deal. Um, and so I think a, a good point to illustrate that would be the, one of the legal cases which we mentioned in an earlier podcast, um, the uh, the case around whether Article 50 is revocable or not, yes. so whether we can get to the end of it and turn around and say, actually, we don't want to do this. One of the main reasons why some people think that that's a really bad idea is that if we can just walk around and at the end of it say, actually, we don't want a Brexit, we'll just stay in the EU, then it reduces any incentive really for the EU to offer us a, a really good deal because they could offer one that they know we would turn down, in which case we'll just return to the status quo, which might be better overall than, than let's say, no deal. And, and so they, they potentially then could avoid the situation whereby us acting in our own interests and they're acting in their own interests can end up with the worst situation for everybody. And so 
from a negotiate from a purely negotiating kind of kind of stance and, and looking at it that way, it, it, it makes sense to take this strategy. The problem is that when everyone knows that it's a bluff and when everyone knows that that's your strategy and that's why you're being so stum on the list, it, it, it doesn't really work out. I mean, Donald Tusk uh, tweeted last week, he said, um, we won't be intimidated by the, the threat of no deal um, because it's bad for the UK and bad for the EU. He said, it's, no deal is bad for everyone, but above all, it's going to be bad for the UK. So if we go down that route, it's going to be worse for you than it is for us. Um, and then there were people coming out, well, he said, he said they're not intimidated. Well, it kind of sounds to me like he's intimidated because he's saying this. And, <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's everyone understands that they're doing this because it's a negotiating tactic. And, and so to me, it kind of feels like, what's the point? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it may be potentially as the rear that they've been forced down. Um, but as I said before, I, I think the issue with it mainly is that it's forcing an increased amount of scrutiny onto the things which the government isn't talking about. So it's really giving weight to the idea of no deal and that no deal might be a possibility and even that it might be something that we choose rather than something that we fall back on, which I think is creating quite a problematic environment. Okay, okay. so with the increased scrutiny, I mean, what we're talking about uh, are academics and we're also talking about mm-hmm. the people in, in, in the bar. We did touch on it earlier on, is there anything in particular interest which I've, which I've come up with which you would like to discuss? Um, I mean, it's just the fact that there's this kind of void left um, whereby the government's suggesting that we might go for no deal and it's forcing other people to do the analysis which maybe the government should be doing or potentially is doing itself behind closed doors. So there's this Foreign Affairs Committee paper um, the government's, the government's done these kind of economic impact assessments before. It did it for TTIP and CETA and things like that. So we know that they can do them. Um, and then, I mean, I think I think I read this week that there's a there's a the the Swedish trade body there's a Swedish trade body which has released a report looking at the implications of No Deal and possible routes for customs cooperation and things like that. And it kind of feels like a Swedish organisation has released something which is more comprehensive than a than our own government has. And it, it it's just it's just kind of worrying. Well, do you think there's any chance that they have not done the assessment because they simply don't think it's likely to happen? That it feels unlikely. Um, I mean, I, th- I can't remember where I read this now, but there was a, there was something out of government in the last week or two which says they reckon the you know the weighting is about thirty percent, twenty thirty percent chance of a no deal, uh, of a no deal scenario. And I think that the challenge is that alone hangs on so many things. So if you think the options for no deal are there's a number of ways that you could get to a no-deal scenario. One is the negotiating time runs out, essentially. The, you know, from both sides of the table, the UK and the EU27, simply do not manage to agree a deal in the time, and there is no will across the 28 countries to extend that. Um, second one is we get to a deal point, but essentially the UK or the EU side, because the Parliament has to ratify as well, decides not to do it and we run out of time. Or essentially the UK gives up at some point and has, has actually decided that no deal is better than, you know, that's the route that it wants to go down. So I think weighting all of those things together, um, I mean, certainly I mean, Alex has talked about it in one of, his, in one of the blogs recently on our, uh, on our Brexit site. It would be very hard to come to any other conclusion that the government has been woefully negligent 
in not preparing for this. Um, <laughs> and in many ways, we could say that about we could say that about the Cameron administration. You know, the civil service was told explicitly um, early last year to not do any work on the implications of Brexit because if it leaked, it would be a disaster. We know government's position was for a Remain vote. Um, it didn't get that, which means we we all woke up on the 24th knowing that the citizens' decision was to leave, but with absolutely no government planning about what that might look like. So, you know, the government's already on the back foot in a lot of that space. Um, we now wind forward. We're, what, six, seven, eight months beyond um, the vote. We've got Article 50 um, about to be triggered. And actually, we still don't have any assessment about where we go. Um, government will point to its white paper uh, that it released during the debate, uh, during the bill debate for withdrawal. Actually, it's nothing more than a series of high-level ambitions. There's no sense of how we're going to go about that, about what might be up for being traded from a UK point of view. Actually, if we can't get X, then we might want to look more detail at Y. It's just actually we want to walk away from the single market. We'll negotiate a specific customs agreement will keep together with some of the things that look interesting um, but it misses all of the detail you know just some of that stuff we were saying earlier it's still unbelievably focused on pure trade and the mechanics of trade and increasingly so on things like residual rights you know how do we uh, is there something telling there that that is that is pretty much the main focus of of this UK administration anyway which is more trade focused and economy focused rather than all the other things. Well, except I'd say that the only reason that they've got a big focus on trade and that they've relaunched their, you know, their big industrial strategy green papers out for consultation and it's an economy that works for everyone is a reaction to the Brexit vote. You know, essentially, yes, we still have the Conservative Party in power. Essentially, from a technical point of view, the government hasn't changed. In reality, the government changed in July last year. Um, and its policies are all reactive to that Brexit decision. Mm. Um, you know, Theresa May has been very clear that she says the vote to leave the EU, whilst yes, there is now a mandate to do so, the British people have spoken, the voice of the public is now known, um, though lots of people would question how true that is. The policies delivered around increased trade, more open to the world, uh, an economy that works for everyone, hard-working families, is a reaction to the, this, the, the view that actually most people voted because they were just sick of the status quo. Mm. Um, so actually, I don't think this is about a government that actually wants to be necessarily much more open about trade. It's a government that's saying, because we are leaving the EU, we are going to have to be much more open about trade. And that's not quite the same thing. OK. Well, how about this then? How about looking back at Theresa May's record? She's a, a, a famously quiet politician until she's made up her mind. Do you think that what we've seen over the last few weeks with very little or no information until the government's ready is going to be something which we're going to see uh, more of in the future? I would say definitely. Um, I mean, her time as her time as Home Secretary in the previous government was was very much run like this. Um, she's a huge um, kind of command and control chief, mm. um, and in many ways, that's probably how she made her time in the Home Office such a relative success. You know, I mean, historically, it's a department that that eats ministers and chews them out after after just a few months. The fact that she stayed in post as long there uh, as she did is is a sign of that. The question is whether those skills, that command and control to you know to rein the Home Office in to get it so it's actually functioning because um, in, in many ways it's been you know, it's been a difficult department for a long time. 
The question is, are those skills appropriate or useful for a CEO chairman role, which she now stands in? Um, she still wants to go through to the nth degree of detail in every policy. Everything has to be pre-cleared by number 10. And we've seen when other ministers, whether it's, you know, whether David Davis, Liam Fox at International Trade, they, they will go out and do a public speech. And actually, within two hours, the Prime Minister's office has come out and contradicted it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a real control. And I think, you know, from a wearing kind of the business person's hat here, most of us would recognise that actually those skills about command and control which you might like in in an FD or in your compliance department are not necessarily the skills you want to see in your CEO. Okay, another thing which has happened recently, very recently in fact, was it last Tuesday was Nicola Sturgeon and the Indy Ref 2 announcement. Now, let's not talk about Indy Ref 2 because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of that in the future. But do we think that this is going to be the precursor to lots of people demanding lots of political demands and, le- and leveraging on Brexit? Yeah, yes. I mean, that's the really, really short answer to the question. This is, I think, for all of those groups in society, those might be, you know, the devolved nations in the UK um, and across Europe, are going to be watching this and seeing this as a colossal opportunity. Um, There was a report out just in the last couple of days which talks about, you know, Whitehall alone is starting to see this as a colossal opportunity to grab power. Um, all of a sudden things which have been um, which have been passed over to varying bodies across the EU um, to deal with and to manage are going to be repatriated over the next two, five, seven years. Yes, they're seeing actually how do we get our hands on that. Um, so I'm going to take your lead and not dwell on in UF2. I think you're right. Um, the challenge now is, and I guess we see it like here in Manchester, you know, as the new as we get ready for the the vote for the new Greater Manchester Mayor uh, in May, and other cities around the UK do the same. They're all starting to look about how do they position themselves as the world starts to change. There's a there's a honeymoon opportunity to try and grab hold of policies, even if legally you don't necessarily have control over them. What you can do is influence how those are delivered. Um, you've seen that in Scotland. There's you know flurries of information from. Wales, obviously the challenges of the political environment in Northern Ireland. We know around the Indy Ref 2 stuff, you've got the, you know, the big challenge as to why, you know, can Scotland rejoin the EU? That'll be being very, uh, very hardly hard fought by areas like Catalonia in Spain, like yep. Basque country in Spain, who are desperate for independence. So, you know, there's some big challenges for the EU in managing all of this. Well, Belgium. Um, I mean, Belgium should be, what, three countries anyway? Absolutely. And it's got nine separate parliaments. Um, and, really? and it does. And, of course, the challenge for, for Belgium is, don't forget, it was one of those regional parliaments in Belgium which nearly killed the Canadian <laughs> trade agreement. Um, so when we talk about, you know, all areas in Europe needing to sign these deals off, it's not just the member states. In some member states, there are regional governments who will get a sign off. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in many ways, it is true. There will need to be a vote from, a be- from one of the sub-regional Belgian parliaments to enable the final deal in the EU to go through. Quite incredible. Um, something which you mentioned on your blog, I think last week, Alex, mm-hmm. uh, citizens' rights being a potential bargaining chip. Um, yeah. You were fairly damning on this point. Where are we now with it? Um, so the amendments went through in the House of Lords, so the House of Lords kind of shelved two amendments. One was um, unilater- unilaterally securing the rights of EU citizens. I think the actual amendment was to get an agreement on that with, with, within three months of Article 50 being triggered, um, basically. Um, and then the other one was around uh, the, the meaningful vote at the end of it. But 
both of those went back to the House of Commons and were thrown out. So now the bill's going through unamended without any changes. Um, and yeah, I, I was kind of of the opinion that the government should actually, once the amendment went forward, should actually turn around and say, you know what, we'll 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 go we'll go with it. Um, I, I, under, I understand their position that they want to use it as a bargaining chip. But uh, in, in my eyes, a situation where those rights aren't secured very early on in negotiations anyway um, is, is almost, in, almost impossible to think about. Um, we, we've tried to sort it out before, um, and the EU kind of pushed back and says, no, we'll wait to the negotiations. But I suspect that it, it might be the first issue on the table. Um, it, it would be a good opportunity, really, to start the negotiations and then two weeks later come out with an announcement that, yet yeah, we've agreed that these rights are going to be secured and it'll be written into law within the next month and it'll be a, a good kind of positive start to the negotiations. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. It would be a, ni- a nice bit of good news before you can yeah. get some more tricky stuff. Yeah, so I, I guess I guess it, it kind of just felt like a bit of a bitter step for the government to kind of keep fighting it at this stage, but I can, I can understand why. Um, and... I, I don't think that because the government's done this, we should be worried that those rights won't be secured. I, I still think it's it's almost definitely going to happen. No, I think I'd, I'd agree entirely. And as, as I was chatting to a Polish friend of mine last night, only exactly about that, as he's starting to look at uh, you know the kind of paperwork he might need to produce mm. um, so he can stay. Um, I think the there's a few things that kind of make this a little bit more complex. So lots of people are shouting about secure the rights of uh, of EU citizens here, so which I broadly agree with. The question really is how and where you draw the lines. So I think from Alex's point of view, I agree. From from you know, I don't I don't like the way government is taking this, but I understand what what it's trying to achieve. Though I think yeah. it's kind of pointless. Um, the challenge then is actually what do you do? So you know, the normal rules in this situation are if you've been resident here for five years, uh, then you can apply for an automatic uh, right to remain, essentially. So you can stay in, albeit without citizenship. Once you've got your right to remain, after 12 months, you can automatically apply for citizenship. The challenge is there's an awful lot of grey areas around those. So I think lots of people are approaching this thinking, essentially, you're either here from a non-EU country, in which case you're under the usual work permit system. If you're here from a EU country, that's it. Your rights are done. And then it's, you know citizenship is kind of the last step. There's a lot of grey areas. So if we look at the rights that people have, certainly under the EU treaties, any EU citizen here today is treated as equal to, uh, to a UK citizen. How might that work going forward? Well, there's more than one right to be here, are you on a work permit which only entitles you to work in the job you currently have, mm-hmm. and therefore actually if you leave that, essentially you're required to leave or reapply for your new job. If you're here um, on right to remain, do you have um, full NHS access? Do you have discounted student loans? Um, what are your social security rights? There's all of these things. So there's not th- this kind of area is not a very simple black and white. And I think from the UK government's point of view, its challenge here is it. I think there is genuinely a desire to fix this very quickly, but there will have to be a cutoff point, and it's going to have to decide um, what that cutoff point is. So are we saying all UK, all EU nationals who've been in the UK before next Wednesday on the 29th? when we expect the Article 50, will have a right to remain after we leave the, the EU, likely at the end of March 2019. Um, what do you do about those people, essentially, who arrive here after Article 50 is triggered but before we leave the EU? Because b- b- until we leave in, in March 2019, they are EU citizens and we are a member of the EU. Therefore, they have equal rights. 
Yeah, you'd have to assume that any rights would change after we leave rather than after we... Absolutely, but the government is... But I think that's an untenable position for government to be in because it is going to want to manage. How do you handle, you know, I guess from, from this government's point of view, the worst case scenario is you say we guarantee everyone's rights until we leave. You see a, potentially a huge influx of European citizens into the UK in the days before we actually leave the EU. Government is going to want to try and manage that process. And so it's going to have to put a red line in the sand which says after this date, we do not guarantee that you are going to be able to stay. Is there any evidence that this is already happening? that we are attracting more EU citizens now before Article 50 kicks in? It looks like it's the opposite, actually. We're, uh, yeah, so we're already, certainly businesses are talking to us uh, about EU workers they've got here who are choosing to go home Mm. uh, now in advance. Now, there's a couple of things driving that. One is certainly uncertainty about whether they could stay. Um, Secondly is actually the currency position. Um, so actually for a lot of those workers they would be repatriating some or most of their earnings back to their home country obviously they're essentially not earning as much in their home currency as they uh, as they were before sterling fell so we are seeing some of those particularly from the eu2 that's the the, the, mo- the two most recent accession countries romania and bulgaria there's evidence that they're going to work in other eu states rather than here mm. uh, essentially just to get from that currency shift essentially, so they get more money in their home currency. Um, But it is around uncertainty. You know, know, if I'm not able to stay in two, two and a half years' time, if I'm going to have to uproot and go and get a job, then actually I may as well do that now. If you have young children who you're about to place into school or are currently in school and you don't know what those arrangements are, you may say, well, actually, you know, for my own family's sanity, you know, at least understanding what's happening, I'm going to go now. And then certainly in the latest migration statistics um, from the Office of National Statistics, there's a decrease in the number of uh, EU people being issued national insurance numbers. So certainly inward migration has softened slightly in the latest, uh, in the latest numbers. I, th- I, th- I think another interesting point on that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, is that the applications of, of EU students into universities has also fallen. Um, and that's interesting because it's actually become much cheaper for them to come here and learn. Um, yeah. and so it's kind, of, it's kind of the opposite impact there. And I don't quite know what, what that suggests, but um, I think the, the rights of EU citizens and particularly some of the issues around academia and funding might have might have tied into that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and we've been seeing this fall off in, in non-UK, in international students generally for a while. Uh, actually, we go back to Theresa May's time as, uh, as Home Secretary, um, the inclusion of, uh, of students in the, in the migration targets, um, the removal of the rights for students to stay on for a couple of years after they finish their degree. So they now have to go straight back home if they want to reapply, and reapply for um, permits to come back here if they have a job after graduation. All of that's had a Downward, downward pressure on the numbers. Then the other big one is certainly there's from EU students' point of view. A, there's uncertainty at the end. If I come and study in the UK, will I automatically get a work permit? Because the UK will be outside the EU by the time we leave. Um, there's also a cost issue. You know, we're one of the only countries in the EU which will charge students uh, for the fees. So essentially, if you're a German student looking to study abroad, you could go to almost any other EU nation except us and receive your degree with no tuition fees. Really? Where you would pay here. Um, so that alone is, um, you know, is a big issue. Yes, certainly they've got a bit more money on the currency, mm-hmm. but the difference between zero tuition fees and 9,100 a year is not going to be sweated out by, yeah. by the exchange rate. Now, are you receiving any requests at the, in, um, in the chamber for help with the costs 
of a less fluid labour market? And how are businesses re- reacting to losing their Polish workforce, for instance? It's, I think at this stage it's not clear. It's, uh, it's a small number for now, um, but the kind of the, the, the touchstone here is that that's starting to increase. Um, there are, I mean, I think in certainly, I mean, EU migrants tend to be focused in, in two or three major sectors, hospitality particularly, um, health and social care to a lesser extent, but within our own NHS system, um, and then certainly as, as students. Um, we're seeing that slow down. Construction, of course, also has a huge number of EU um, labour, and colossally so from those new accession countries. Um, so I think 50% of all construction workers in London come from either Bulgaria or Romania. Really? Of, of, of international, of non-UK. Yeah. 50% come from two relatively small countries um, in Eastern Europe. So there are some big recruitment challenges for them. They're starting to work through some of those issues, um, but essentially they're, they're hidebound by current migration policy. Um, so they're having you know, what we call our Tier 2 visa system, um, which is the way by which you apply for work permits for non-EU citizens to come and work in the UK, is fiendishly complicated. Uh, it's administratively difficult. It's expensive to go through. Um, and companies, not surprisingly, don't, you know, don't want to go through all of that unless they have to. But certainly they are starting to look at that. Government in its industrial strategy makes noises that it understands that this is an issue and it's going to need to do more to both support the skilled workers, the skilled indigenous workers of the UK, uh, essentially, so that we can you know, grow our own talent to fill those skills gaps. But none of this is going to be sorted anytime soon and certainly not within the two-year window we've now got. It strikes me as if it's going to be very difficult to grow, well, as you say, grow the skills to fill this gap if the gaps is trying to fill or in the lower end of the economy, you would, you would have assumed those would be gaps that we could fill relatively easy with relatively little upskill. Yeah, and it, it's kind of one of those, this, this goes to the heart of an awful lot of very complex issues in the UK economy. Um, you know, if we look at the amount of vocational training we do in the UK, that's been, that's essentially been on a sliding downward curve for the best part of 40 or 50 years now. Um, it did tail off quite quickly after 2004. Um, why is 2004 important? It's the year that the eight first Eastern European countries essentially uh, came into the EU. Um, we didn't have any transitional arrangements with the EU that we could have done, but then, uh, then Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair decided not to. And actually, essentially, the UK workforce has become, the UK companies, particularly in some sectors, have become increasingly reliant, saying, actually, we don't need to train up because we can just import skilled workers. There's such a volume of them, the supply is so strong, we can fix our gaps with those. All that, of course, can be turned around. We can develop those new systems, but all that is going to take time, and it's really not clear what government solution for that interim period is going to be. Excellent. Right, uh, do you know what? I think we shall leave it there. Um, where can we find you on Twitter, Alex? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And Christian? I'm at, GM, uh, at GMCC Research. Now you can find Pearson's at Pearson's un, um, underscore FSB or myself at J Beardmore. Uh, we will see you next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.